everyone. Uh, my name is Ryu Kojima. Uh, currently teaching at Kyushu University Faculty of Law. And also, I'm taking sabbatical leave uh, from the end of this March, end of last March. And then I'm currently staying at the Max Planck Institute for Intellectual Property and Competition Law in Munich, Germany. So I'm, I'm very much did, uh, uh, delighted. It's a, it's a great honor for me uh, to be invited to this seminar and then talk about did, uh, today's topic. Today I will talk about cultural diversity and the law from the perspective of cultural policy. And did, uh, this is the, its contents. So in this presentation, I would like to consider the normative institutional framework to achieve the diversification of cultural expressions. And then here and after, I use the term cultural diversity in the society. And then in order to achieve this goal, I would like to make an, make an analysis from the perspective of cultural policy. So um, first of all, I would like to tell you the premise of this, present of this presentation. In my view, law should aim to foster the diversification of cultural expressions in the society. And then also we have to think, and then in thinking about cultural diversity, we have to think about the situation of at least three players in the society, namely creators or originators of cultural expressions and intermediaries or media, and finally recipients or I should say consumers. And in thinking about cultural diversity, we have to think about the interactions between those players. When we focus on the situation where cultural expressions are created or originated, we realize that several cultural policy measures coexist in a parallel manner. And we have to also bear in mind that each cultural policy measure has pros and cons. In other words, strengths and limitations. And then here I would like to pick up several cultural policy measures to illustrate you know, what kind of functions they have. Although not exhaustive, we could at least raise the following cultural policy mechanisms related to the creation of cultural expressions. Namely, designation as cultural property, public funding, direct funding for culture from the government, and also there is a private corporate philanthropy donation. And also, we could raise post hoc prizes or rewards. And also, we could name intellectual property in this framework. So what is pros and cons? What is the characteristics of each cultural policy measures? In direct funding for culture, the decision on how to allocate resources, I think the, the typically the money, is mainly made through the political process. And direct funding for culture could be characterized as a more centralized or direct form of decision making. And on the other hand, when we take a look at private or corporate philanthropy for art related sectors, including, for example, like symphony orchestras or music halls, art NPOs, etc., 
Here, individuals or corporations that engage in philanthropic activities can enjoy, they, they decide that how, did a, how and when the money should go. And especially in the United States, if you make donation, actually you could, get, you could enjoy tax deductions or other benefits from the government. So here, the decision making is not made by the government or through the political process. It's up to each individuals or corporations. But if these schemes, philanthropy, is combined with tax incentives and so on, it can be conceptualized as a kind of indirect subsidy. So what about intellectual property? Intellectual property, namely copyright or industrial design right, it gives an exclusive right for the exploitation of intellectual creation and right holders can recoup their investment and take advantage of market mechanisms. So in the second and third options, namely philanthropy and intellectual property, the decision of which institution is to be supported is left to each individual or corporation. Although government supports and facilitates the system, they organize the system through legal framework by preparing and enforcing, enforcing various legal mechanisms, the actual decision making is decentralized when compared to direct funding for culture. And as I said, the above mentioned three choices, namely direct funding for culture, philanthropy, and intellectual property, they are not exhausted. As I pointed out, there is also post hoc prizes or rewards or protection of cultural property and cultural heritage. Prize and rewards is sometimes very, very important, especially for young talents, because they are not famous. So when you win these kind of prizes or rewards, you could be famous, and then you, could, you maybe might be independent in the market mechanism. What about cultural property or cultural heritage? It looks like imposing certain restrictions to property holders. When, for example, like old houses are designated as cultural property, you cannot alter easily. Right? You cannot demolish it. It looks like a restriction. Right? So that when you want to alter it, when you want to rebuild it, you have to get a permission from the government. But at the same time, actually, it gives certain incentive. It gives certain benefits as well. Once protected as cultural property or cultural heritage, it could be famous. Right? You could brand based on the, these kind of designation. So it looks like restriction, but at the same time, it gives certain benefits as well. So in the real world, a state's cultural policy consists of a combination of these portfolios. And then in practice, the important issue, the important thing is to identify the optimum mix of or combination of these different approaches. In order to achieve, so seen from the state point of view, in order to achieve 
a certain desirable cultural policy, we should be aware that a certain institutional bias is inherently embedded in each institutional mechanism. This is what I learned from the institutionalism. And it is important to complement the flaws of other mechanisms in order to achieve certain desirable policy values. So I'm now, I've, so here I would like to focus on the creation of cultural expressions. And then I, I also would like to touch on the intermediation of the cultural expressions at a later stage. But for the time being, I'd like to focus on the creation. So when we focus on the creation of cultural expressions, we could more clearly identify the strengths and weakness of each mechanism when we focus on the following issues. Now, first of all, who should and should not offer what kind of resources? When should the resources be offered and based on what kind of justification? Second, who should and should not make what kind of intervention? And when should the intervention be made and based on what kind of justification? What kind and degree of intervention should be permitted? Now, and the above mentioned two questions could be boiled down to a patronage of creation and creators. Because I'm now trying to focus on the, 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 the resources that creators could get, and also the, the intervention that creators could suffer. So how shall we conceptualize data patronage? Is it just a matter of money, or is it just a matter of intervention? Probably the situation is not so simple. The empowerment of creation and creators is closely related to intermediation of those cultural expressions. And then in many cases, those patrons play very, very important role as intermediaries at the same time. So I would like to raise a very, very typical example from the history. In the pre-modern era, the role of kings or monarchs who commissioned works to artists, they did a, the kings or monarchs, they commissioned works to artists or craftsmen. And then they offer money, and then sometimes they offer a you know, place to create, or you know, sometimes you know, they offer, they allow certain time you know, those works to be completed, accomplished. But at the same time, why they make commission? Because you know, they want to display it somewhere, and then they want to show off. So here, the patrons provided the places to exhibit or perform those works. 
why Esther Haji commissioned symphonies to Haydn, and then why did they employ a lot of musicians? Once did Haydn completed the symphonies, they performed, and then it was beneficial. It was did a, actually that they would enhance the reputation of the monarchs or kings as well. So it's a kind of win-win situation. In some cases, of course, there are conflicts, but in many cases, the relationship between patron and those craftsmen or artists, they're a win-win situation. And then here, I want to emphasize, re-emphasize that you know, here, patronage and intermediation, they're closely intertwined each other. As did Dr. Matsura, actually that I introduced in the beginning of the lecture, I started my career as an intellectual property lawyer. So here I would like to focus on the function of intellectual property in the creation of cultural expressions. In the case of copyright, Property right is automatically granted to creators as long as certain necessary requirements have been satisfied. So a lot of anecdotes or you know, a lot of examples are written in the casebook, copyright law casebook. So the copyright would be granted to a, those kind of paintings which is painted by just five-year-old children. Right? So, so when you really take a look at, when you just read those kind of descriptions in copyright law casebook, you might have an image that the copyright system looks like very democratic because even five-year-old children can enjoy copyright and one-size-fits-all model. However, I'd like to point out that Beneficiaries, real beneficiaries of copyright in the real world are very, very limited to those who satisfy certain conditions. In many cases, it is, I feel, a kind of dilemma that's the, the following fact is overlooked or that it's unwritten in copyright law textbooks. We should also consider, when we think about the creation of cultural expressions in the context of copyright, we should also consider organizations that economically maintain creators or performers, namely patrons. It's because those organizations provide resources of creation or performance and so-called risk money at the same time. When you take a look at record labels, when you take a look at entertainment agencies, or if you think about publishers, they have a contract with many, many creators or performers. Right? They're employing those, in, in extreme case, in some cases, they're employing those performers, for example. It's a kind of investment. And then in this investment ex ante, 
nobody knows whether the investment would become successful in the future. And as I said, those organizations in, many, in most cases employ various creators or performers. And their businesses should be sustainable based on successful products generated by superstars. But when you think about the reality, the number of superstars is very, very limited. If products, including books or records, implementing those creations or performances would gain attractivity, popularity in the marketplace exposed, it is natural that those organizations should require certain stakes from the success of those sales. So how the profit from the success would be allocated between creators or performers and organizations is fully up to the bargaining power that exists between them. So if, suppose, one superstar has gone through a very, very long period of time without, without making any hit songs, for example, 10 years, 15 years, and eventually, and at the very end, they could get you know, the hit. Probably the organizations would require more stakes because the organization, those record labels or entertainment agency, they employed for a long period of time. And also when you think about copyrights, you have to bear in mind that those products, books or records, they're diffused either as a form of reproduction, namely CD or books, or through public transmission, such as broadcasting, or the, uh, I don't know, some kind of internet, those kind of transmission. So copyright empowers certain superstars, creators of performance, and media, such as publishers, entertainment agency, record labels, movie studios, broadcasters, etc. So when you read copyright law casebook or textbooks, or when you read certain books on creative industries, it is sometimes, or, it's, or I, I should say it's mostly said, that copyright is an incentive for creators. But if you take a look at the real world, if you take a, take a look at the reality, it may not be true. Copyright may be an incentive for intermediaries, or I should say media. And then as I said, the profits allocated between those two players, namely creators and intermediaries, it's fully up to the bargaining powers between them. So the structure of information dissemination in copyright is closely related to that of the mass media. So that's the reason, partly because of that part, UNESCO Convention of Cultural Diversity functions as a tool to fight against the hegemony of Hollywood, because Hollywood gains lots of profits based on cinematographic works, movies. So it must be difficult for intellectual property to empower stakeholders who do not satisfy 
those above mentioned conditions or the structure of information dissemination. But nevertheless, we have seen various arguments to expand the subject matter and the scope of intellectual property. Probably partly due to the fact that the discourse to overemphasize the role of IP has been widely spread out. And then probably the typical example of this kind of over-exaggeration of the function of intellectual property is the current argument on the legal protection of cultural, traditional cultural expressions. So in the next part that I would like to talk a little bit about the case of traditional cultural expressions. Currently, there is a very, very heated debate within UN organizations, including UNESCO and WIPO. The question is whether and to what extent intellectual property like legal protections should be applied in traditional cultural expressions or so-called traditional knowledge. In 2007, I attended a conference on intangible cultural heritage in Delhi, India. And then I was a discussant to Professor Wim van Zanten, uh, who is from University of Leiden in the Netherlands. He's an ethnomusicologist of the uh, one indigenous people in Indonesia, namely Badui. And then he made a presentation on how he made a recording of those indigenous music of Badui. The interesting thing is that the, the, the Badui people, they didn't have a concept of recording. So what Professor Big Van Zanten did was he went to the, the indigenous community many, many times, talked with people, built a confidence, and finally that he, made, he was successful in recording their music. But showing a kind of respect, when he made a recording of the, the, the music, actually he hided the microphone underneath the building, underneath the houses of the indigenous people. And then so that the, the indigenous people, they don't have to take a look at, so that they don't have to kind of say, realize the existence of the microphone. So they didn't. They didn't have to be. They didn't have to feel that their recording, that their music, was has been recorded. So, in his presentation, he mentioned that it took an enormous amount of time and effort to build confidence with indigenous people, and his community before recording their music. And Professor Panzanten also pointed out that pecuniary reward may have the possibility of insulting some indigenous communities. It is often said that traditional knowledge belongs to community for a long period of time in a very, very collective manner. And sometimes they have a characteristics of not being verbally recorded, etc., etc. If we introduce property-based concepts in traditional knowledge, we're obliged to ensure so-called prior informed consent. 
you have to get a permission from the indigenous community. My question is, does this mechanism really fit well with traditional knowledge or crafts, traditional crafts, especially with information dissemination and social norms among stakeholders in those areas? You also have to consider whether granting legal protection serves for diversification of crafts or traditional knowledge. Crafts or traditional knowledge is closely intertwined with the surrounding community of those stakeholders. Therefore, it may be dangerous to discuss only property-based protection separately from the way community works. When you, when you take a look at certain Japanese communities, for example, it is becoming more and more difficult to preserve such cultural expressions due to the fact that the ties between the community are weakening. When you take a look at Japan, for example, we've seen the debate of so-called marginal hamlets, in Japanese we call genkai shuraku, where more than half of the population is over 65 years old. In such a community, how to ensure the sustainability of the community itself is a very, very critical issue in meaning cultural expressions. So it would be the case that just granting intellectual property, for example, to those indigenous communities may not be sufficient. We should think about ties first in their community. Traditional cultural expressions are closely intertwined with the community and its everyday activities. In Japan, this issue is becoming more and more important, more critical, after the Tohoku earthquake, especially in the Tohoku area, after the earthquake, tsunami, and the aftermath in March 11, 2011. Professor Norio Akasaka, who is very famous in ethnology, actually that I read his book, uh, talking, discussing about the reconstruction of the uh, Tohoku area. And then he pointed out the significance, the importance of the, the traditional folklore, traditional festivals maintained in the community. And then he picked up one example in the Miyagi prefecture, namely the uh, Minami Sanriku town. Uh, there is a traditional folklore, so-called Shishiodori. The people wear the other, the other kind of the other shishis, the deer. So deer-shaped, these kind of kind of hats or helmets, and then they dance. And then after the March 11, the other, as you know, San, Minami Sanriku town actually that they suffered almost 20 meters high tsunami. And then I visited the other community. I, I visited the town at the end of last year. It was devastating. And then so that how to re-strengthen the tie, how to reconstruct the area. That these kind of traditional folklore plays very, very important role. And then I think the same thing happens in Rikuzen Takata, probably which is probably the other, uh, the worst tsunami affected area in along the coastal line. And then uh, before this presentation, I went to Pitt Rivers Museum. And then actually the, um, they have a special uh, kind of display on the, the, um, how the, the, they could safeguard or the rescue the, those kind of 
uh, exhibits in the museum in Rikuzen Takata. So that if you're interested, please visit. And then in Rikuzen Takata, they had a festival, and then they have a certain number of portable shrines. I think 15 portable shrines. But still, most of them were damaged or uh, destroyed by tsunami. And then only a couple of them remains. So, and, but still, uh, the indigenous community, uh, the, the local community, actually, they are, they are trying to rebuild the, uh, those shrines and portable shrines, and then it's an important event for the local community to re-strengthen the tie. So and these kind of tsunami-affected, especially in tsunami-affected areas, how to revitalize the community and industry may be more important. This is the crucial thing. So just establishing legal protection in traditional cultural presence may not be sufficient. Okay, so one. In the next part, that I would like to focus on traditional cult cultural expressions, taking one example from my region, the Kyushu Island. There is a city called Beppu in Kyushu Island. Kyushu is located in the southwest part of Japan, which is close to China and Korea, as you know. And then the city of Beppu has the very famous hot springs. And then according to the uh, statistics. Um, it is said that the amount of water charge is the second largest in the world, next to Yellowstone National Park in the in the U.S. But in Yellowstone, it's very difficult to find the, uh, those hot spring, those kind of hotels or the inns. <laughs> so on. In literally, in reality, actually, the Beppu is probably might be must be probably the biggest those kind of uh, hot spring areas in the world probably in in terms of surcharge the water charge. In Beppu, uh, there are eight famous areas, eight different areas, and then each different areas actually that are, you could enjoy completely different kinds of hot spring. I think the quality is completely different. And then in one area called Myoban, it has preserved manufacturing technology of hot springs mineral deposit in Japanese so-called Yunohana, the flower of the spring. And then this manufacturing technology is designated as one of the folk techniques under the system of important intangible folk cultural properties under the Japanese law. And then, without the vibrancy of the community of Myoban, technique will not be preserved and inherited by generations to come. Here, that I would like to show you some photographs. Um, how did they produce those hot spring mineral deposit? So in the Myoban area, Around 50 manufacturing facilities exist. And then they dig 30 centimeters so that the gas containing sulfur would erupt from the earth. So and the facility looks like a kind of ancient house, which is made of straw. Inside the facility, 
you can realize that they put clays on the ground. Why they do so? Because if you put clays, according to them, yeah, the gas could erupt equally and consistently. So you could easily realize that the gas erupts from the earth. This is quite common in Bebu area. And, you can, and also you could smell the sulfur. So. And they rebuild these kind of facilities every two to three years, very fast. Because facilities are easily harmed by the highly sulfurized gas. This is a mineral. This is the crystals of the deposit. And then the speed. How much speed they would grow per day? One millimeter per day. And it takes 40 to 60 days to be produced through crystallization, refinement, and drying. This is a manufacturing technology which dates back to Edo period, for more than 300, 400 years ago. So, if we ground legal protection, similar to patent or copyright in traditional cultural expressions, we have to think about the issue of duration, term of protection. In patent, the duration is 20 years after the application, and in copyright, it depends upon countries, but in Europe, 70 years after the death of the author. Very long. Suppose we set up certain lengths of terms of protection. The community will enjoy economic profit within that period. But the protection expires at a predetermined time, either 20 years or, I don't know, 100 years. If the technique could be easily imitated and exploited after the duration, the community might be swallowed up by large commercial entities. As long as the scarcity of resources has been maintained or the branding of manufacturing technology has certain competitive advantage, those communities may survive after the term of protection. However, a legal protection may not match with the sustainability of the community in the long run if those communities cannot differentiate themselves after the duration got expired. So even when we consider the legal protection in these kind of cases, it should be meticulously articulated to serve the self-help and sustainable development of the community. But at the same time, we should be very, very careful that the community does not become, does not become monolithic. And then here I would like to raise another example in Kyushu Island. In the southern part of Fukuoka Prefecture, Fukuoka is the, uh, where I used to live before it, uh, moving, moving to Germany, uh, there is a city called Okawa in the southern part, and then which is famous for the production of furniture. 
And then here I'd like to argue the possibility of introducing so-called regional collective trademarks in Japanese so-called chiki dantai shōhyō. These are some examples of the uh, furniture produced in the city of Okawa. Like this. Very cool, isn't it? Actually, that I went there um, two years ago, more than two years ago, and then I made an in uh, I had a conversation with one craftsman. And then I asked him the possibility of introducing regional collective trademarks in the city of Okawa in terms of their furniture. And then the answer of one craftsman, actually, that craftsman, that factory actually made these kind of products, very highly sophisticated products. And then his answer was negative. Why? According to him, there is a huge discrepancy in the quality amongst manufacturers in the region. So he may have thought that other craftsmen and wholesalers in the region would free ride if a system of regional co collective trademark were to be introduced. So um, I was very, I got very ashamed because I overlooked the fact that the, the, the community at that time, at that time did a, I was conceptualizing community in a very monolithic manner. So um, here we face the great difficulty of conceptualizing community. So, um, for the regional collective trademarks to function well, we need certain necessary conditions. And unless stakeholders in the region reach a consensus as an entirety to improve the quality of their products, introducing regional collective trademarks may have a negative impact against foreigners, such as those craftsmen, who have already made great efforts in manufacturing high-quality products. If they would like to brand local products collectively, it may take some time for some manufacturers in the region to change their mentality and catch up with foreigners to raise the level of their production. So I'm just introducing, so as a conclusion, just introducing regional collective trademarks may not work in an area with similar social and market structure as the city of Okawa. So through this fieldwork, I realized the very, very simple fact that certain necessary conditions should also be clarified at the time of institutional design. Actually, the, the regional collective trademarks was not was introduced just seven, eight years ago. So, so it's not an old system. It's a kind of new system. And then. It's, 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 it's obvious that certain institutions would not function well unless the necessary conditions have been met. But when you open the trademarks commentaries, for example, of the Japanese Trademark Act, actually there are probably the other, those kind of necessary conditions would not be clear, explicitly written, probably. In, in, the, in the commentaries, and then it's a, it's a huge pity. So, um,
In the next part, I'd like to talk about the argument of the applicability of modern concepts. Because the concept of intellectual property, as I examined so far, is a modern one. In Japan, we have struggled a lot in determining how to locate Japanese artistic expressions within the modern concept of art after the Meiji Restoration in 1868. Before modernization, we didn't have a clear dichotomy between arts and crafts. And also, we didn't have a necessity of such separation. So when you would ask a kind of question to 17th century, 18th century Japanese people, do you think the paintings of Jakshu, for example, is an art or craft? Probably they would say, what are you getting at? <laughs> and then here, in order to tackle this problem, I'd like to focus on Soetsu Yanagi, Muneyoshi Yanagi. He's a founder of the folk art movement, Mingye Undo, in 1920s. Sorry, maybe I should show the Yanagi's photograph first. This is Yanagi. And this is the Nihon Mingeikan, Japanese folk arts museum, which is located uh, very, very close from the, the Komaba campus of the University of Tokyo. So when you have a chance to go to Tokyo and then in Shibuya area. Um, have you been to Nihon Mingeikan? Great. <laughs> so, and as I said, in the process of establishing modern museum systems and the surrounding institutional framework, some kinds of artistic expressions were categorized as art and industrial design. However, the rest were marginalized as crafts and deemed to be of second rank. But in Minge Undo, the folk arts movement, Yanagi uh, tries to challenge these kind of conventional views. According to Yanagi, the excellence of crafts should not be measured by how the works are similar to artistic expressions. So in this respect, he's critical against uh, William Morris in arts and crafts movement. Because according to William Morris, the why the, the, the craft is excellent? Because it's close to the art. But Yanagi said, no, 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 it's not true. Traditional crafts, crafts has its own value, which is completely different from art. And according to Yanagi, unknown craftsmen are engaged in making things on a communitarian basis, following long established traditions. And this is a book by Yanagi, uh, translated by Shoji Hamada, who is a very famous ceramist. Probably you know that Hamada was working together with Bernard Rich from UK. So when he translated Yanagi's book into English. And then the title is The Unknown Craftsman. In the modern concept of art, 
successful creators are designated as genius, and the difference or the distance from traditional expressions is thus highlighted. However, Yanagi tried to identify and champion the distinct, independent value of crafts and its surrounding social structures in the creative process. I focused on, I focused on traditional crafts, but still we could find a kind of similar phenomena in contemporary art. Contemporary art has its origin as a criticism of traditional or modern forms of artistic expressions represented in academic paintings. However, contemporary art places great value in context and tries to introduce a chronological timescale into creative expressions. And also, contemporary art is more dynamic, and it does not fit well with the static beauty of artistic expressions. And as I said, contemporary art places great value in context. And in one of the characteristics of contemporary art, it's so-called site-specific. Artworks is closely intertwined with the narratives of the places it's, for example, like they're displayed, for example. This is a painting by Mark Roscoe. Yeah, Roscoe. <laughs> and then when you have a chance to come to Tokyo, uh, I strongly recommend you to visit uh, DIC Kamura Memorial Museum in the suburbs of Tokyo, in Sakura. Actually, they have an excellent collection on Mark Roscoe. I think they have at least five or six Mark Roscoe. Uh, I, I wrote an article on contemporary art and the law two years ago, and then during the, during the writing process, I visited many, many contemporary art museums, and then I, I, was, I also visited there, and then I was, I was, I was overwhelmed by the other his work. Uh, it's fantastic. So the Sakura is, the, uh, is a very interesting town. Uh, they have the, uh, another ethnological museum and the, uh, they, have, they produce good sake. So, <laughs> so um, if you have a chance to go to Tokyo, the, uh, uh, please visit Sakura. This is Mark Roscoe. And mm, it may be difficult. It looks like black. I think in, in the handouts, probably it may be a complete black. But when you carefully take a look at this painting, actually you can see the subtle lines here. It's divided into at least nine parts. This is a, this is a contemporary, I think, the, I think the title of the painting is contemporary art. Uh, the, the, uh, no, abstract, abstract, abstract painting by Leinhardt. It looks like black, it looks like simple, but according to the uh, art specialists, it's a very, very meticulous work. It's not the simple work that they say. Why did Leinhardt made such an effort to create such kind of painting? This is very, very interesting. And as I said, the, the contemporary art has one characteristic of the, the focusing on 
get a context and site-specific. Of course, there, are, there is a, in, in my article, for example, which was published two years ago, I discussed quite a lot about the copyrightability, for example, of contemporary art, which is quite debatable. But at the same time, probably the other, irrespective of the copyright protection in contemporary art, probably the other copyright may not be the best tool to empower them. Maybe we need a more comprehensive approach in empowering contemporary art. And you, when you take a look at contemporary art, you may realize that the other, there is a lot of arguments re related to so-called art projects. In Japan, that are in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, we've seen many, many art projects in throughout Japan. I think, the, I think in, in several cities, actually, that they have Triennale, they have Biennale, Yokohama Triennale held every three years, or Kobe Biennale every two years. And then in 2010 and this year, uh, there was a very huge international art project in the Setouji region, inland sea area, so-called Setouji Kokusai Geijutsai. And uh, in Niigata area, in Echigo, where the, uh, the, you, may, you, may have rem you may remember that the, uh, the huge earthquake hit the, the Niigata area in 2004. Because we have the uh, March 11, so a lot of people is now, come say, a lot of people may not be remembered, but um, into they they they, affect, they suffered a lot. So um, in this the uh, area in Niigata Prefecture, actually they have a uh, art projects every three years. Echigo Tsumari Art Triennale. So and um, and then also in Tagawa, for example, uh, there was a coal mine project from 1996 to 2000. Which was by Tadashi Kawamata, who is a very, very famous the other, uh, uh, contemporary artist. It was so called the other Tagawa Coal Mine Project. And then, as I said, the other, these kind of art projects is closely related to community renovation or town management or industrial heritage. Because Tagawa, where the, other, the wife of the other, Professor Yaneri's come from, actually, the other, and also the other, the, the place where I come from uh, used to be coal mine. And then it was abandoned in the 1960s, and then still there are, it's struggling economically. So there are Tadashi Kawamata, actually there are, he made there are these kind of art projects in Tagawa for 10 years, and then there are, that was there are closely related to community renovation or town management. So a kind of informal aspect of contemporary art was not welcomed in the modern concept of art. However, uh, we have to acknowledge that modern institutional frameworks, including IP or museums, prioritize artistic expressions and marginalize the rest of cultural expressions that drop out from the definition. An institutional framework based on modern concepts may have certain limitations in diversifying historically marginalized forms of cultural expression, such as crafts or traditional knowledge. However, modern concepts such as IP, intellectual property, should not be totally excluded in the context of traditional cultural expressions. Here, I'd like to raise the case of Eriko Horiki, 
uh, who is a very famous designer of Japanese traditional paper. Actually, the, she obtained patents on the production method of making Japanese paper. Actually, the, Ms. Horiki, she got two patents. One invention was making three-dimensional paper, which is an oval-shaped structure without any framework or glue. And another patent, another invention, was a method of making seamless Japanese paper. Size, which is, the size of this paper is 16 meters and 6 meters, which is very, very big, extremely big as a Japanese paper. <laughs> and then before she invented these methods, other craftsmen thought that such technique was impossible. So she asked many, many questions to other craftsmen, but they said, no, 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 it's impossible. But she did. So um, this is you know, her traditional paper. It's very cool, isn't it? And this is another one. This is a kind of wallpaper. And the last one, <clears throat> um, it, is a, it is an interior decoration of Tokyo Midtown in Dopongi. So probably, yeah, these decorations, interior. It looks like it, it's very modern, very cool. And then sometimes that, uh, when I take a look at it, her works, it looks as if it is, it looks as if it would be a kind of contemporary art. So um, this is very, very unique achievement. Why, but, the, but my question is, why she got patents in traditional crafts, in traditional cultural expressions? And then it is often said that in, in an area of traditional crafts, craftsmen, they learn, they learn those kind of methods from the other teachers, predecessors, and also that they teach they themselves teach their, their techniques in the next generation. And also in traditional crafts, it's often said that they refer to their other craftsmen's works. So if that's the case, why did Ms. Horiki got patents? Of course, I haven't interviewed her. I want to do so in the future, but I haven't done yet. So it's my personal observation. But when I read the interview, of the Ms. Horiki, she said that you know, she started making new tools. Of course, new tools is a kind of metaphor, but she started from making new tools in inventing such techniques. So it, it is not the kind of application from the, from the prior art. She said she created new tools. She made new tools. And then this comment may give us some hints when and how intellectual property could be an empowerment mechanism in an area of crafts. And also, I have to point out that Mr. Toyo Ito, who is a very famous architect, who won the Gold Lion at 2011 Venice Biennale of Architecture, he added his name as a joint inventor in the patent of making oval-shaped structure. And in another patent, on a, on an architect, Mr. Masayuki Kurokawa, he's also a very famous architect, also commissioned another patent. So these inventions were intended to be applied in the field of architecture from the beginning. 
So such a wide possibility of application in different fields would be another factor in favor of Ms. Horiki obtaining patents. So I want to conclude that the application of a modern concept in an era of traditional cultural expressions should not be one-size-fits-all or conceived as a zero-sum game. And then I would like to go to the last part of my presentation. So far that I focused on traditional cultural expressions and traditional crafts. The focus on these areas teaches us that we have to seriously think about the community and its norms and customs if we would like to diversify those cultural expressions. In some cases, communitarian norms or customs would be in conflict with state laws, where intellectual property is also not an exception. Here, I would like to raise another example, the last example, about haiku, Japanese 17 syllable poem. Before then explaining the court judgment, I'd like to introduce, I'd like to show you that one article of the Japanese Civil Code. Article 9.2 of the Japanese Civil Code stipulates as follows. In cases there is any custom which is inconsistent with a provision in any law or regulation not related to public policy, if it is found that any party to a juristic act, such as contracts, has the intention to abide by such custom, such custom shall prevail. So if, for example, like customs right, has a different treatment from state law, which prevails? As long as, unless these kind of special treatment is not related to public policy, custom should prevail. This is what these article said, this article says. So, what about the court judgment? Here, this is the fact. One person contributed a haiku in one of haiku-specialized magazines. However, the editor published the work making certain alteration, change, in the expression without consent of the contributor. So the contributor brought a lawsuit based on the author's moral right to keep the integrity of the work. This is Article 20 of the Japanese Copyright Act. Here I'd like to introduce the Tokyo High Court judgment. Tokyo High Court mentioned as follows. This is very interesting. The correction of haiku dates back to the era of Basho Matsuo in the Edo period, and the custom remains the same in contemporary haiku. Contributor must be aware that the alteration of haiku would happen. Many editors correct contributions in such columns, and there has been no or if any, very little complaints from readers. And according to Tokyo High Court, Article 20 of the Japanese Copyright Act, stipulating the author's right to keep the integrity of the work, could be understood as a default rule, namely a provision in any law or regulation not related to public policy. So the court said Article 20 is not the mandatory rule. So, they could be, so it could be overridden by the custom. The court continues that there was an existing custom that publication of haiku with correction was possible at the time of the contribution. A contribution's manifested intention, which is contrary to the custom, cannot be found. Therefore, the correction of the set haiku should be permitted 
in accordance with the custom in the haiku community. This is this is very interesting case. And then what we could what could we learn from them? Here, the importance is the community. And then in the modern era, the term community is not geographically restricted. And we could conceptualize such a community in conducting certain activities, even on the internet as well. And according to social network analysis, a loose-knit tie amongst people is extremely crucial in considering cultural diversity. In considering cultural diversity, I'm repeating again and again, but we should carefully think about the way community functions. And traditional crafts, traditional knowledge, are deeply connected with everyday life, everyday life and embedded within their communities. In some cases, materials essential to those cultural expressions are natural resources mainly provided within the community. And norms to exploit those resources have a communitarian basis. Here, these kind of analysis reminds us the issue of rights of commons. And then in Japan, for example, we have lots of lots of arguments about the Japanese version of rights of commons, so-called EDI or EDI-ken. But after, after 1970s or 80s, after Japan gets modernized, we haven't seen much debate on this issue. But now, the rights of commons is now highlighted in an area of environmental sociology or agricultural economics and those kind of areas, which is in the, which is in the neighboring field of law. So um, the new light is now being shed to rights of commons, and then probably we could learn from them. And then this argument is also closely related to marginal hamlets, those kind of town management or revitalizing those communities. And then when you think about commons, for example, in an area of, for example, intellectual property or cultural expressions, we have created so-called creative commons. Creative commons, probably you know, it's an, it, it tries to achieve a different value from the copyright, but relying on copyright. This is a very, very interesting mechanism. So I think the, the creative commons, the argument of creative commons should be also located within such a broader framework. And then this kind of argument is closely related to legal pluralism. Namely, to what extent certain norms among certain stakeholders should be valid and legitimate. This is closely related to the current contemporary arguments regarding global administrative law or the choice of law rules in private international law, etc. In the, from the legal perspective. And then through Haiku case, we realized that we have similar problems within the nation state when we focus on the issue of traditional crafts or traditional knowledge or traditional cultural expressions. As I said, these kind of choice of norms issues in the past, especially in an area of law, which was mainly discussed in private international law. But we have those kind of conflicts of norms even within nation state. So it's not only applicable to private international law. 
So to what extent communitarian norms should prevail against state law is a problem of applicable law in domestic context. So this haiku case actually illustrates, exemplifies this very, very interesting issue. So um, today I talked about the issue of cultural diversity uh, from the perspective of cultural policy, focusing on traditional cultural expressions and communitarian norms. So this issue covers very, very wide range of fields and discipline, so um, it is extremely difficult to offer a comprehensive synthetic analysis at the current stage. So it, this is a kind of mid-term, long-term project for me. So I would like to continue you know, this research um, on this from a more comprehensive perspective in the future. So thank you very much for your.